0: Some of my earliest memories of studying the Bible came um, at Park Avenue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, where my father was a pastor. and I can vividly remember some of those times. Uh, There was an older gentleman who uh, just loved me to death. His name was Captain Jake. He was the captain in the fire department. He would often, uh, when you took up the offering, I would always sit on the row with them, and he thought it was hilarious. He would put candy in the offering plate. He thought it was funny to watch me take stuff out of the offering plate as a pastor's kid. The other thing that he would do is he was with the bus ministry in the children's department where they would go into parts of town and bus in kids to come and hear the gospel. And Captain Jake would, uh, usually before and after church, eat lit cigarettes. And uh, he would, come one, come all. And he would light a cigarette, and he'd chomp the thing and eat it. Uh, Lived well into his 70s, believe it or not. (laughs) On a steady diet of cigarettes. Um, But I remember, I remember the room, I remember going into the room, and I remember learning Bible stories. And back in those days, and uh, I don't know if everyone in here has the same memories as I do, or, or was taught the Bible in the same way, but we were taught in flannel graph. You remember flannel graph, where you'd stick the figurines up against the thing and we would learn stories of the Bible this way. This is how we were taught the Bible, and these were my earliest memories. And one of the things that I remember vividly about the flannel graph people is that they were always really happy. There was always kind of smile, they were there were these nice-looking figures. And then I remember in my college years of beginning to read the Bible for myself, And this real interesting interplay would happen where I would read in Judges the story of Samson and the flannel graph memory would come and I was like, oh, this man is nothing like what I remember. These memories, these stories that I had learned as a young child were often sanitized to the point to where I missed the point. And so as I began to read the Bible for myself and to dig into God's Word... These new truths, this new vision of what God and the writers, what God through the the writers of His Word were trying to show me. I remember this story of John the Baptist and Jesus just vividly. Of of John, this, this, this really nice guy, smiling with this big furry cloak on. And Jesus coming to the scene with a nice white robe. And this is not a political statement. I don't remember if his sash was blue or red. Um, but you know, coming in with a nice flowy hair. And so as I, it was interesting as I was beginning to study this week and looking at this passage, it was interesting that I was thinking and studying about John the Baptist that the flannel graph picture just came right back to my mind. I think there's a danger here. I think there's a danger. In sometimes in the way we read the Bible, sometimes we make some assumptions, sometimes we come to the Bible with some presuppositions about who these figures are, whether it's John the Baptist or Jesus. And sometimes we miss the point. I know for me, a lot of times in reading in the Gospels, I will say, oh, I, you know, I know this account, I've read this before. And I'll just kind of skip right through. And in doing that, a lot of times we miss something glorious. Mark, this morning, wants us to see something glorious. And there's a danger that if we just gloss over this, or if we take the flannel graph story that I heard, and we bring it into this account, that we may miss something big and deep and beautiful. Mark doesn't just haphazardly begin his gospel with this account. Now, if you were with us last week, you know, one of the things in the overview of the book of Mark that I said is that, you know, Mark is is interesting in the way he writes, that there is no birth narrative. There's no angels. There's no magi. There's no little baby Jesus. There's no little baby John. Mark starts here, boom, with the baptism of Jesus. And Mark is trying to communicate something to us. There is a point here. Mark is telling us something. Mark is not just giving us a quick history of the life of Jesus. Mark is driving home a point. God sovereignly has a point. His Spirit His spirit guided Mark as he wrote. And there is a point to what is going on here. And I want us to see it. I want us to see How marvelous it is. And I want us this morning, as we see this, as we see what Mark is wanting to tell us at the beginning of this book, I think what it does is it sets us up to read the rest of his book in the right way. That the lens in which we read this book is a lens uh, from which we view this gospel, ultimately from which we view Jesus in such a way that as we read this gospel and as we read about this Savior that has come to this earth, that it changes us. And that it might even change us over the next months and years. Now, as we begin this morning, I want to look and see, I'm, I'm struck, why in the world would Mark begin this way? Why in the world would Mark begin with John the Baptist? And, and even that, even To look a little bit closer. I think to do that, we've got to see what Mark is communicating about John the Baptist. But even in doing that, notice Mark doesn't tell us about Zechariah and Elizabeth and the, you know, that Elizabeth was barren and God gave her a child, and we don't see Elizabeth and Mary and the the baby leaping in the womb. That no, that we just see Mark start here with John as a grown man in the wilderness. He's in the desert preaching. Look at verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That may not be the strange part as we begin this narrative. That there was a man. We we might say, oh yeah, some wild guy just went out to the desert and was preaching. But Mark is pointing us to something something else. Look in verse 5. And I want you to hear this. So, John the Baptist was in the wilderness preaching and all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Now certainly we know this is hyperbole that not every single person in Judea, not every single person in Jerusalem went out to the desert. But what Mark is telling us is that really, 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 really large groups of people went out to the desert to hear this man, John the Baptist. And one thing you need to know, it was not like what they were doing was leaving here and going out to the pavilion, but this was like an 18 or 20 mile journey. On foot into the wilderness to go to this river to hear this man preach and to be baptized by him. Not an easy trip. And so we have to ask the question, why were they doing this? Why were all these large flocks of people going out to the desert to hear this man, John? And the first thing that I want to look at, I want to look at his message and see if we can get some clues in his message. Why might they be going out to hear them? And look, there's two parts to the message. The first part is in verse 4 says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And here's what I want to highlight to you. They did not have to go out to the wilderness to repent and to have their sins forgiven. Where would be the logical place for them to go to repent and have their sins forgiven? To the temple. To the Levites. To maybe their teacher or a teacher. They could have gone there, but there was something else happening. There was something else happening that I think we miss because we know the story. And so we have to ask, why the desert? Why John? The typical thing to do for repentance and forgiveness of sins would have been to offer some sort of sacrifice. That's not what they were doing. They were going out to the desert. We get closer to the point When we look at the second point of his message, which is found in verse seven, and he was preaching, saying after me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the throng of his sandal. That John not only was proclaiming and preaching forgiveness of sin and baptism, but he was also proclaiming that one is coming. Now, we're going to pause on that and get back to that in a second. But I want to ask another question that is odd, that I think we miss in this text. Why is John baptizing people? Hopefully you know that when it says John the Baptist, it does not mean that he was the first Baptist. That's a qualifier. It's John the Baptizer. He was in the wilderness baptizing. Now what I want you to know is I think one of the things that happens from early on in my childhood, I saw tons of people baptized in the baptistry all the time for Unfortunately, for a variety of reasons. (laughs) But it was a commonplace. In this day and age, think about it. Had Jesus died on the cross? Had Jesus been raised into the newness of life? Was there anything where we could say, I baptize you, my brother or sister, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Nope. What in the world was John doing? What kind of baptism was this? It wasn't a common practice in, in 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 the Jewish religion. This wasn't a common practice. I mean, the only two things that, that that we could kind of look towards that that might be going on if we were looking in Jewish history were was, was there were some washings, some ceremonial washings to 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 make yourself clean, you know. But that had to do more with um, some of the purity laws and and some. Uh, things to keep diseases out of uh, the, the, the folks that were going through the wilderness, the Israelites in the wilderness. The only other thing that we see is that sometimes, or not sometimes, all the times, proselytes many times would be baptized But this was meaning that it was a non-Jewish person who wanted to become Jewish would be baptized and they would gain entrance into the Jewish uh, religion. But these were not Gentiles being baptized. These were Jewish peoples being baptized in the desert. What in the world is going on? What is John doing? Let's take a closer look at John. Mark and the other Gospel writers give us details about this guy one of the things we learn about john is that he is in the desert and he is eating locusts and wild honey now uh you may be shocked to know that it was actually a pretty common place if you were in the desert for a long period of time that you would eat locust this was common it actually was a good source of protein and so i think One of the things that we're being told by Mark here is that John was in the desert for a while and he had separated himself and he had gone out into the desert for a purpose. And this is where he was, this is where he was living, this is what he was doing. And so he was eating locusts and wild honey. Wild honey would have been plentiful and would have been there and would have been a very good choice of things to eat. The thing that I want to really draw your attention on to is... How he was dressed. This is where, again, that vivid picture of the flannel graph comes into my mind of this big, fuzzy, tunic looking thing. And I want to ask maybe a weird question Who dressed John? I don't think John had a wife in the desert that was saying, Hey, John, wear this camel hair today. What I want you to see is that John was intentionally putting on this outfit of camel hair and leather belt. There was a purpose in what he wore. He was communicating something. And we do this all the time. I want to give you some audience participation time here. Let's say that you're driving down the road. Driving this way early in the morning. You reach a flashing sign that says school zone. You see a man or woman in an in a uniform, that has a reflective vest on, what's going on? They're directing traffic, right. Crossing guard, right? Directing traffic. Let's change the scenario. Let's say you're out in the woods and you come across a guy in camouflage in a bright orange or a bright yellow vest and he's got all kinds of camouflage gear on. What is he doing? He's hunting. Good, good. I, somebody sent me a picture, and this is not to t- turn political this morning, but I do think it makes, helps make the point. Somebody sent me a picture of one of the, one of the young men who was storming the White House, was wearing a, a hoodie, but the imprinting on it was a Revolutionary Guard outfit. What was he communicating? Right? So by the way we dress... At times, we're intentionally trying to communicate something. And this is what is going on with John. John was intentionally wearing this outfit because his attire and his location was communicating something to these people. And this gets us closer to the heart of why in the world they would come out in throngs and throngs of people to see him. And the point was this. The way he was dressed was common for a prophet to dress In particular, in 2 Kings, we see that Elijah dressed this way, and so for him to dress himself in this way, he was announcing to the people that he believed himself to be a prophet, and he was out there in the wilderness proclaiming a message from God. And so now we begin to see why all these people were coming out and seeing him. And in this garb, in proclaiming himself to be a prophet, he was even going a step further by proclaiming to be a a, a type of Elijah and the people would have known what he was doing as they went out to see him and they heard the message for themselves that he was proclaiming that Messiah was coming. Here's what I want you to see. All these people, all of Judea, all of Jerusalem, they go out to the desert, they go out to the wilderness, because there is a longing, a waiting, a hoping. Like I said last week, there had been 400 years since a prophet had, had, had come onto the stage, and here you have this man out in the wilderness saying, I am a prophet And the Messiah is coming. And not only this, and this is speculation, so let me say this, but I think I'm right on this. Think about the events that had happened. You think they might have heard rumblings that a baby was born from a virgin? You think they might have heard that there was a star in the sky? You think they might have heard some of these miracles that took place around the birth of Jesus? That they heard some of these murmurings? They heard some of these rumors? Certainly, they probably would have known that Herod had sent out the decree that the firstborn child to be killed, and that they probably would have known that the reason that Herod did this is because he was afraid because it had been prophesied that Messiah had come, Within 30 years. And this man shows up in the wilderness. This longing. This expectation. This waiting. And this man shows up in the wilderness proclaiming to be a prophet. And the people are flocking out to the banks of the Jordan River. And I think they were sitting there expectantly. Longing with hope. And I think what was dominating their hearts and their thoughts on the bank of that river was hope that Messiah was coming. We see this in John's purpose, don't we? Look at verse 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. And now we begin to see the picture begins to unfold that he was prophesying that Messiah was coming and as people were coming out longing, awaiting this Messiah, John was there helping them to get ready for the Messiah to come. And he was preaching to them, get ready, you get ready by repenting, you get ready by washing yourself. Be clean, the Messiah is coming. Let's back up again, and let's ask the question, who is this Messiah that John was proclaiming? And that Mark is proclaiming to, the, to us. And, and that, he wants, that Mark wants us to see from the very beginning. When we look at this quotation from the Old Testament in verse 2 and 3, it says from the prophet Isaiah, but it's actually two quotations. One of them is from Malachi. The other one is from Isaiah. And there's something striking about this prophecy. Now, don't let that rattle your cage. It was actually pretty normal in New Testament times, in the writing of the New Testament, to combine two uh, quotations to one person and to give it to to give credit to the more prominent one uh, you, you would get plagiarism for this in which English class, but th- that's not what happened in this day and age but as as we 're here and we see these prophecies, I first want you to turn to the book of Malachi and I want you to notice something that is just mind blowing here you'll see it right off the bat, but there's two things I want us to notice from this from this group of passages. Start in chapter 3, verse 1, and this is God speaking. It says, Behold, I, God, God is speaking, Behold, I am going to send My messenger, the prophet, and He will clear the way before... What's the word? Don't miss this. Don't miss this. I, God, am sending My messenger, and He will clear the way before Me, God, Yahweh. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come into His temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the first thing that I want you to see, that as John is in the wilderness proclaiming this, as Mark is writing this, Mark wants us to know that it is God Himself who is coming to His people. And the people on the banks of the Jordan were understanding this and they got it. And notice what it says, what in this context, this passage says about God. Notice what He is doing. It says, but who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? God is holy, He is just, for He is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord the offerings of righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. And then notice this again. Then I, God, Yahweh, will draw near to you for judgment and I will be swift against and list out some things. And it says. Against those who swear falsely. Against those who oppress the wage earner. in his wages. The widow and the orphan. And those who turn aside the alien. And do not fear me. For, for says the Lord of hosts. And so what we see. Is that God himself is coming. And we understand in this prophecy, why the people would be there on the banks of the river and why they would be purifying themselves and washing themselves because they want to be found in a certain way when God comes to His people. But this isn't the only quotation we have. The second part of this quotation in John is from the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, Mark quotes Isaiah quite often. In the book of Isaiah, really chapters forty to the end of the book, talk about God coming and visiting His people. And this is where we have the uh, Messiah prophesied and talked about Isaiah famously in Isaiah 53. But notice the, the quote in Isaiah. But I, wanna, I want you to get the context. Look at Isaiah chapter 40. Notice verse 1. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. And call out to her that warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Notice the, the different tone here. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for who? Our God. Let every valley be lifted up. Let every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain. Let the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And John, as he is here proclaiming this message and Jesus comes, he says, Behold, God has come. The glory of the Lord is among you. I'm unable to untie the thong of His sandal. This is majestic. Look at verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain. O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily. O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Notice good news. Gospel, gospel. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say it to the cities of Judah. Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might. With his, arm ruling over, with his arm ruling for Him, behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense is before Him. Like a shepherd, He will tend His flock in His arm. He will gather the lambs. He will carry them in His bosom and He will gently lead the nursing ooze. Oh, what a picture we get of our God in these quotations that Mark is starting his gospel off with. And He wants us... To understand who this is. Good news. Messiah is coming. And the tension here on the banks of the Jordan is this. Don't miss it. Don't be left out. God is coming. He comes with judgment. But he also comes with mercy and love for his people. Be on the right side of this. So, when we get to verses 9 and 11, it's clear who John says this Jesus is. And Mark notes this, and we get it from the clues in the passage. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening. And notice this, the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. Again, Mark is telling us, this is the prophesied Messiah. This is God Himself. God's Spirit is coming and it is resting on Him. And not only that, but we have God speaking, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And if that weren't enough, Mark is doing something else that I don't want you to miss. Notice that Mark says that the heavens opening this is probably not a good translation here. The word that is used here to opening is to be rent or to, to tear open violently. Mark uses this word another place in, the God, in this Gospel. He uses it at the end of the Gospel when Jesus is on the cross and the curtain is torn from top to bottom signifying, signifying that the curtain is torn, that God tears the curtain from top to bottom so that you and I can have access directly to God Himself, that we no longer need a mediator, a priest, because we have the perfect high priest. We no longer need a sacrifice because we have the perfect sacrifice. That it is torn. And as exciting as that is, there's even something more exciting about looking at this Word. And I don't want you to miss it. Later on in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 64, Verse 1, Isaiah is longing for the Savior. He is longing for the visitation of God. His heart is just oozing out expectation and want. And notice in chapter 64, verse 1, same word. Oh, that you would tear the heavens open and come down. Oh, that you would tear the heavens open and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil. Make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. You get a glimpse. What Mark is trying to tell us. That the heavens are torn open. That God is telling us. As he tears open the heaven. He is saying that I have come down. I am with you. Emmanuel. God with us. Mark is wanting us to see. Who Jesus is. So that when Mark begins his gospel this way and he says the beginning of the gospel that he is taking us all the way back and he is saying this is the one who has been prophesied about. This is the beginning of the gospel message. Our deepest need, your deepest need is to be reconciled to God and the beginning of the gospel is that God made a way. And this is the declaration that Mark is making to us. I think one of the problems that we have that Mark wants to, doesn't want us to falter into, that he didn't want his readers to falter into, is that our picture of Jesus can become skewed. Much like my flannel graph depiction of John the Baptist or Jesus, our picture of Jesus can become skewed. And Mark doesn't want us to live there. Mark doesn't want us to read his gospel in that way. I think to the people to whom Mark was writing, they were going through persecutions. They were, going, they were in hardships. And there was a longing. And there was a waiting. And there was hard times. And there was heartaches. And he wanted them to know that God had made a way That they served the Christ, the Messiah, that was, that is, and that is to come. This is the God they serve. Who tore open the heavens and came down to be with them. So as they're going through these hard times, they can rest and trust in that. And I think for me, maybe for us, maybe you're in the same place, that as Mark writes this, he wants us to get this accurate picture of Jesus. That maybe our religion, maybe the stories we heard when we were growing up, are getting in the way of seeing Jesus for who He truly is. And Mark doesn't want us to live there. Mark wants us to see this Jesus for who He truly is. And so my prayer for us, as we go through this Gospel of Mark together, That the Spirit of God may continually press upon us who this Jesus truly is. And that Mark, right from the outset, is setting us up to read his gospel in this way. And that as we read this, it will create a longing and an expectation and a hope for Christ's return that we might be able to cry out with the prophet, Oh God, that You would rip open the heavens again and come and take us into the final glory. That His Spirit would fill us with power so that we would go and proclaim accurately who this Jesus is. And would you dare read this Gospel message with me in such a way that your mind may be blown over this Christ? Whom we will study. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God I pray. That by seeing the true and accurate picture of your son this morning. That God that you would just do something miraculous in our hearts and in our minds. That you would bolster our confidence. That you would bolster our strength. That those in here this morning who may be hanging on by a a thread. By those who may be troubled by the events of this week or by. The events that are going on in their homes, that God you would strengthen them, that we would know that you have sent your Son. God, I pray as we read this gospel together that we wouldn't be the same, that you will change us from one degree of glory to another as we peer at the glory of the Lord in Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.